One of the verses I uh, memorized early on as a young uh, believer was John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Is that a reference that seems uh, familiar to you? Do you know that verse? Uh, He, Jesus, came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Children indeed born of God. Uh, Those words underlie uh, the text this morning in Matthew's gospel as we continue in Matthew 21. It's the parable of the tenants. That is, our Lord came to his own first, to Israel, to the Jews, to those who had been promised a coming king, his peace, his righteousness, his salvation. And yet we will see in their great rejection of the Lord Jesus, Christ becomes the cornerstone, the rock upon which uh, the nations stand. And so we turn to Matthew 21, beginning at verse 33. So listen now to God's word. Matthew 21, 33. Jesus speaking, he says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we will have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They, the chief priests and Pharisees, said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. I want you to focus your attention back on verse 45. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them, and they sought to arrest him. The the effect that Jesus' teaching has on the chief priests and the Pharisees is a great reminder of the purpose of the parables in the first place. It's a reminder of the power of this parabolic teaching that Jesus Gives. It's a reminder, indeed, of the power and the effect of the Word of God. Parables are often seen as simple stories to communicate a single point. Perhaps you've had that in your mind. I've had that in my mind for many years. 
And perhaps they are that, simple stories to communicate a single point. But they are much more than that. And we see how much more they are than that by the effect that they have as Jesus gives them. He tells us the very purpose of the parable back in chapter 13. Why it is he even teaches in parables at all. This is what Jesus said back in chapter 13. I speak in parables so that seeing they don't see and hearing they do not hear. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Some eyes see, some eyes do not see. Some ears hear, some ears do not hear. That is, the same word, the same parable, the same message proclaimed will be missed, it will be rejected by those who think they understand, by those who think they've grasped it, and yet it will be embraced and understood by those who thought they could never get it. Perhaps the simple-minded The parable has a dividing effect. The word has a dividing effect between those of faith and those who are in unbelief. It divides the sheep and the goats. It divides the wheat from the chaff. It divides the righteous from the unrighteous. It has that effect. And so when Jesus says in verse 33, listen to another parable, hear another parable, he's not merely using an explanatory device. He's not giving the parable for mere instruction. He is using a device that divides, that cuts, that affects. And that's exactly the effect it has on the Pharisees and the chief priests, those who are listening in, those in great part to whom he is addressing. He's not merely explaining something. This is having a personal effect. That's part of what the stone is said to do when Jesus refers to Psalm 118. In verse 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And so as much as our uh, culture or world would like to stand at times indifferent to the Lord Jesus, not investing their lives in his kingdom, but not rejecting him, they really cannot do so. There is no indifference toward Jesus. There's no middle ground. You're either for the Lord Jesus or you are against him. And it's in part why we as Christians are called the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others. It's the effect that the gospel and the word of God has. We remember Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the effect that parables have and that the Word of God has. I don't know if you've seen drawings or portrayals of the Scottish reformer John Knox, uh, but some of them uh, portray him with, of course, his long and distinctive beard, apparently uh, characteristic of those in the 16th century, and making a comeback, I think. Uh, But they also show him holding an open Bible, and along with that at times, a double-edged, long, double-edged sword. Now, we know historically he was a bodyguard for the reformer George Wisher for a time. I don't know if Knox ever preached with a double-edged sword, uh, but if he did, I'm sure uh, people paid attention. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's one way to get the attention of the hearer. But it's a great picture of the kind of power that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, has. It pierces, it cuts. And so we want to understand how the parable is to take effect, the kind of effect that Jesus wants it to have in the lives of his disciples. And so Jesus gives the parable, verse 33. There's a master of a house. He plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs a wine press in it. He builds a tower, and then he leases it to tenants, and he goes into another country. For those first century Jews, those listening in to Jesus' parable, uh, the, the picture Jesus paints is crystal clear for them. And here in one verse, verse 33, Jesus has essentially captured the history of Israel. It's truly magnificent. Here's the metaphors. Uh, the, the master of the house is the Lord God. The son is the master's son, the son of God himself. It's a veiled reference to Jesus, very likely. The servants sent to gather the fruit are the prophets of old. Sent to proclaim the word of God, that the people would repent and heed the word of God, that they would bear fruit. The tenants, likely the leaders of Israel, elders and priests, the vineyard is the people of God themselves. It's Israel. So as Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and the chief priests, as first century hearers or readers would take this in, when Jesus used the image of a vineyard, of a choice vine, it's a picture of God choosing his people. It's a picture of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. And it took deep root and filled the land. There's a metaphor for Israel. Redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Planted in the promised land. And we see those kinds of references throughout the Old Testament. But likely the one that Jesus has most in his mind is Isaiah 5. And several of the commentators point this out. It's worth turning to. It's quite remarkable how similar the language is in Isaiah 5, the first seven verses, and the parable that Jesus gives. Verse 7 of Isaiah 5 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Back up to the top of Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. A love song for my beloved. It's very easy to move from verse 33 in our text to verse 34. But 33 is critical because in this one verse, Jesus is communicating the great love and extent to which the master goes, the Lord goes, to ensure fruit, to choose a people, bless a people, protect a people, and cherish them. Uh, one author commented that in this one verse, there are eight verbs. 
eight actions that we see to show just how much God worked on behalf of his people. He plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs a wine press. He builds a tower. He leases it out. In other words, he has done everything he can to ensure the bearing of fruit. And how critical this is for our own lives. Uh, to step back regularly to remember what God has given to us. He has given us his word to know the way of life. He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower and strengthen us to live after him. He has given us his covenant community, adopting us into his family to know true fellowship. He has given each of us a gift or many gifts to invest in his kingdom. He's given us most of all his son uh, to deliver us from sin and from death. Just this past week, uh, we had the privilege of having an evening Zoom session uh, with one of our missionaries on that we support, Anna Pilato, serving in uh, a region of the world, South Asia. And there was something that she said that was really impressed upon uh, my heart. Uh, She said during this time and this pandemic around uh, the world, she and others, in demonstrating the love of God for others, distributed food. And as a result of distributing food to those in need, people have come to saving faith in Christ. And she said, part of the reason, she believes, is because while many people in this part of the world believe in various gods who are attributed with doing various things, the one thing no one believes these gods to do is love their subjects. That may be striking to us who know the God of the Bible. These gods do not love They may be viewed as powerful, demanding, equitable, perhaps wise, having control over certain things, but they are not loving. The God of the Bible loves his people. He has an affection for his people. He pours himself out for his people. For God so loved the world, in John 3, in love God predestined us, in Ephesians 1. We heard Isaiah 5, our God sings a a love song, or Isaiah sings a, a love song for his vineyard, the chosen people of God. And so our God loves loves his people, rejoices in his people. He even sings over his people in Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, exult over you with loud singing. Uh, Sometimes we have what the Christian author Paul Tripp calls gospel amnesia. It's true, we forget. We forget who we are and all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are called to to preach that message to ourselves each and every day. Of course, in the story, the master does not plant the vineyard and lease it to tenants as a mere end in itself but that the vineyard would produce fruit, that there would be fruit. That word fruit is a key word through this parable and story, even in the response of the Pharisees and chief priests. Look at verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. But the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. 
Here we have really a historical synopsis of how the Lord again and again sent his servants, the prophets of old, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah, to declare the word of the Lord and how the people of God, the leaders of the people of God, treated the prophets. Jeremiah is a great example. He came with the word of the Lord to the people of God, and in Jeremiah 20, the priest Pashur beat Jeremiah and put him in the stocks. And so Jesus in the story says more servants were sent, even more than the first, and they did the same. So again and again, God sends his servants to gather fruit, but there's none that's gathered. Many people point out that part of what Jesus is communicating is indeed the patience of God. He is a God who demonstrates long-suffering. But there's perhaps an even more important point, or equally important point here, and that is our God not only desires to do for his people and work in his people, calling us, planting us, adopting, establishing us in the faith, but he desires to do something through his people. And again and again, Israel fell short at times because they viewed themselves as a mere repository, kind of like a pool that just collects the blessings of God. Well, that's wonderful in part, but God's people are also like a river through whom they receive the blessings of God that they might bless the nations. And we have seen that in part in other parables. We see it throughout the scriptures that Israel was called to be a light to the nations. It was one of their downfalls. God is long-suffering, but he is not forever suffering. How long would the master, how long would the Lord bear without seeing fruit? I know several of you, as we've entered springtime, have likely a prepared garden around your home. Perhaps this is something you do each season. Tilled the soil, you've removed the rocks, you've planted the seeds, you've watered, you've done what is necessary, and you're looking forward to some kind of harvest to see that growth occur. We've done the same in our home, or I should say one of our children has done most of that work. And I asked her, our daughter, just a couple days ago, Uh, as much as you enjoy the process of gardening, for how many seasons would you go before you would stop if you you do not see any fruit? Some of us really enjoy gardening, but how many seasons would you go of continuing the work without seeing fruit? She wasn't quite sure how to respond because we anticipate fruit. We usually can count on uh, bearing fruit. But of course, in this parable, it's not just the absence of fruit that the master is suffering and enduring. This is kingdoms in conflict. They not only go to the extent of killing the servants, but the very son of the master. They want his inheritance. They want their own kingdom. And this is the great high point, a turning point of the parable. 
uh, throughout the Old Testament, while Israel was referred to as a vine and a vineyard, they were often a wild vine. Many of the references in which we read about Israel being a vineyard and a vine is in the negative. They end up being a wild vine. Even in Isaiah chapter 5 that we read, the Lord planted choice vines. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. They're not sweet. They're sour. They're not flourishing. They're wild vines. And what's Jesus' question in verse 40? When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the Pharisees, following along, they answer, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits. There's the great paradox. The rejection of the master's son becomes the means by which God extends the gospel to the nations. Jesus says, haven't you read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is, your will to put the Son of God to death is my will to extend the light of the gospel to the nations. It's a wonder how our God works. All is not as it seems. The tenants think they will get away with it. The beating and the killing of the master's servants, even even of his son. But the parable reminds us, God wins out even when it seems he has lost. The suffering and the death of his own son, that becomes the cornerstone. There's revealed a deeper story here. His death. His loss atones for sin. His death, his loss reconciles us to God. His death demonstrates his presence and his suffering with us as his people. All is not as it seems. Even as we look at our own lives, as we continue in this season of ministry, sometimes what appears as a loss, a pain, a problem, a a, a setback, a disruption, is God's way of working mysteriously out His glorious will. And many are the ways we have seen this and will see it as we continue to follow after Him. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 43, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its Fruits. What does Jesus mean here? He's not distinguishing between Old Testament Jew and New Testament Gentile. That's not the exchange. That's not the change. God has always had his church from the beginning through the Old Testament into the coming of Christ and through the New Testament. It's not a distinction between Jew and Gentile. He always has his people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Rather, it's really the taking away of the kingdom from those seeking to build their own kingdom, those who are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and given to those whose lives are resting on the true cornerstone, Christ and his kingdom. There are two very powerful images to be engraved in our minds this morning. One indeed is the vineyard, the picture of the vine It's no coincidence that God chose Israel 
planted them, blessed them, yet they became a wild vine. It's no coincidence that Jesus in his ministry says what? I am the true vine. This is not, this is not an image Jesus pulls out of thin air. It's deeply rooted in the history of the people of God. I am the true vine. I'm the true vineyard. I'm the true chosen of God. Abide in me and you will bear fruit, Jesus says. Fruit bearing is in direct relation to one's connection, relationship to Christ, the true vine. A person doesn't need extraordinary gifts. A person doesn't need advanced degrees. A person doesn't need to be well known to bear much fruit for the kingdom. They need to be united true to the to the true vine. And we might be wondering, well, what does this fruit look like? Where does this fruit come from? I think I think we're, we hearken back to, to Matthew chapter two, John the Baptist's words. John the Baptist said in chapter two, verse eight, "Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent. Have a change of heart. Have a change, a turning of your mind." from self to the things of God. And then we will see, as we do, as we follow the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit being born in our lives. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we have the picture of the vine. And then we have the picture, indeed, of the temple. It's interesting in Luke's account of the gospel, uh, chapter 19, verse 47, Luke tells us that Jesus, in this final week of his earthly ministry, was visiting the temple, teaching in the temple on a daily basis. We've seen Jesus go to the temple and cleanse the temple. He's teaching in the temple. He's doing much in the temple. The house of God. teaches in the temple, cleanses the temple. But perhaps even more than that, he is pronouncing judgment upon the temple, upon those who are overseen and corrupting the house of God. And that's what we will see in the coming weeks. This is a house that Jesus will declare will be laid waste, not one stone left upon another. Jesus is declaring himself to be indeed the true temple. In its place, in the place of the physical temple, this stone, the stone the builders rejected, will become the cornerstone upon which the house of God will be built to the ends of the earth. And we know the scriptures call us living stones. God is building us into a spiritual house that the world would know the glory of our God and his goodness and mercy. Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious God, how we thank you uh, for your grace to us, for calling us, for even cherishing and delighting in us. Lord, even in our sin and our depravity, Lord, you have set your affection upon us. You have done a marvelous work before us. Lord, may your word sink deeply into our hearts that it indeed would bear much fruit, that we would rejoice in your loving kindness in our lives. 
and the Spirit's work to sanctify us. Continue to do that work, Lord, as we offer ourselves to you, as we repent, and we yield ourselves to your will and your word. And we pray these things with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to God's word this morning, uh, let's stand. We'll sing our closing hymn, number 521. Uh, My hope is built on nothing less.